Greetings all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us meeting here at Central Campus, as well as those watching from our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. And I also want to welcome our online audience as well. I'm sure our, on, our online audience has tripled on a weekend like this. So if you've come to church today, you deserve a pat on the back. Well done. <laughs> We are in a sermon series called Unveiled Jesus in the Book of Revelation. The final book of the Bible offers striking portraits of Jesus that we are not normally familiar with. Years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a popular little book called Your God is Too Small. And this book presented the inadequate concepts of God that linger in the subconscious minds of people. And these are faulty notions of God that don't represent the God of the Bible. I think it will be equally valid in our time to write a book called, Your Jesus is Too Small. Because our mental conceptions of Jesus are sometimes guilty of belittling Him. Let's be honest. How does Jesus look like in most of our movies and paintings? He's presented as a soft character, He's a handsome figure with hair like a shampoo model. His hands and feet don't look like that of a wood and stone worker. He cradles a small sleeping lamb and has a halo around his head. No wonder people perceive Jesus as a gentle, non-offensive, meek, and mild. Many people think this Jesus makes up for the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is like this newest updated version. God has finally worked on his people's skills and now has come forth a lot kinder and tolerant. In the midst of all this confusion surrounding the identity and personality of Jesus, it is extremely critical that we uphold the biblical view of Jesus. You know, let's not forget our view of Jesus will affect how we live our life. Whatever conceptions of Jesus that we have, will have an inevitable impact on the nitty-gritties of our living. The book of Revelation does a great service to all of us by pointing us to a, a majestic Savior. The word revelation simply means unveiling or bringing to the surface what is previously hidden. This book is not just a revelation of end time prophecies, but it is the revelation of a person the Lord Jesus. Now, let me review quickly the images of Jesus that we have seen so far in this series. We started off our sermon series from Revelation chapter 1, where we encountered this exalted cosmic Christ who revealed himself to John in the island of Patmos. In the second message from Revelation chapter 5, we witnessed one of the greatest paradoxes in the Bible, The lion of the tribe of Judah is also the lamb who was slain. And only Jesus is worthy of unfolding God's plan of redemption. Last weekend, we looked at Jesus, the dragon slayer. The very reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. And today, we're going to look at yet another powerful portrayal of Jesus as the king of kings, and Lord of Lords. If 
you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read from Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord, we affirm in this place that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Would you please help us to see him more clearly, that the vision of Jesus will impact how we live our life. We pray, Lord, that you will personalize this message to each one of us, that whatever circumstances that we are in, we will have a fresh new vision of Jesus. So we commit this time to the leading of your spirit. We ask this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. As a brand new Christian, the very first Bible that I received was a Gideon's King James Version Bible. I have one advice for all of you. Never give a KJV Bible to a new Christian unless you're giving it to Shakespeare. You know, I started reading the Gospels, and then out of sheer curiosity, I wanted to find out how the Bible ended, so I went to the book of Revelation. And here I was, a brand new Christian without any training, reading the book of Revelation from a KJV Bible that didn't even have chapter headings. And nobody told me that the images in this book are metaphors and symbols, and not everything should be interpreted literally. So I was astonished by the dragons and monsters and beasts and locusts, and I was scared to admit that none of this made much sense. And like many of you, I almost gave up on this book, saying it is just beyond my understanding. Now, if I'm teaching today from the book of Revelation, I've come a long way. There's hope for all of us. One thing we will look at in this sermon is how to address the strange metaphors in the book of Revelation that communicate such scary stuff. But at the same time, I don't want us to deviate from the main focus, which is to get a fresh vision of Jesus. The apostle John, while on exile in the island of Patmos, wrote this book to the seven churches in Asia. But the message of this book is relevant to Christians across the ages. The early church that received this book, the original audience, they were discouraged 
as they faced one wave of persecution after another under the powerful Roman Empire. Christians refused to participate in emperor worship, which made them atheists in the eyes of the Roman government. They were seen as political traitors who gave allegiance to another king. The first century Christians faced a major dilemma. They struggled to reconcile their sufferings with the victory of Christ. As Christians paid the price for their faith, the evil one wanted to deceive them by calling all of this a big hoax. Scoffers abounded and they questioned, where is the promise of Christ's coming? When is he going to come back? It is this historical context that serves as a backdrop to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19 is the beginning of the final act in which Jesus asserts his lordship over all things. This is the start of the grand finale, how everything will finish. Now look at the opening verse of our text. Verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. And when, when John says here, I saw heaven open, he's alerting us to the fact that there's a profound revelation that's about to come. What do we see when heaven opens, when there is an unveiling of heaven? We see a person. This is indeed a revelation of Jesus, and we are going to see Jesus like we have never seen him before in the Bible. The picture of Jesus in Revelation 19 is unparalleled. The identity of the one on the horse is crystal clear. It is the Lord Jesus in the fullness of his divine majesty. And he's riding a white horse. And what is the significance of that? The original audience to whom John wrote this book would have no problem at all in understanding the profound meaning behind this imagery. Because John is clearly depicting a conquering king. In a culture where emperors and generals rode white horses to signify their triumph, John pictures Jesus as the victorious conquering general. This is a provocative image because the triumphant king is not Caesar, it's Jesus because he's Lord even over Rome and all of the seemingly invincible powers. Now notice the contrast. The first time when Jesus came, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, when the king rode into a city on a donkey, it means he's coming in peace. But when they come riding on a horse, it means one thing, war and conquest. The reference in our text to white horses, crowns, titles, and armies all communicate the comprehensive victory of Christ in military terms. I'm going to go through the description of Jesus in this text. This is simply mind-blowing. For this is the Jesus we serve. This is the one worthy of our highest adoration and praise. First of all, Jesus is referred to as faithful and true. It speaks of his character. 
The word faithful refers to the fact that Jesus is dependable and trustworthy. When a person who has proven faithful says something, we know that it is binding. You can trust in those words to come to pass. As the faithful one, the promises of Jesus will not and cannot fail because that will go against his character and reputation. Oh, when you sit on a chair, you sit with the confidence that the chair is going to hold your weight. And that is what is being communicated here. Jesus is faithful. Whatever your circumstances may be, he is able to hold you. When you entrust your life into Jesus' hands, you can know this for sure. He's not going to let you down. Jesus is faithful, and he's also true. The word used there means genuine or authentic. Jesus is the real deal. There are many cheap imitations of false spiritualities all around us. In the midst of that, Jesus offers us the truth. The amazing thing is Jesus doesn't just teach us the truth, but he is the truth. Truth is embodied in his person. Our text says, with justice, he judges and wages war. This is the uncomfortable part that we don't like to talk about. We sweep it under the carpet. And I'm going to address this in the latter part of my sermon. But look at verse 12. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Jesus' eyes are like blazing fire. It's pure and bright. With his penetrating glance, Jesus doesn't just look at us, but he can see through us. He knows the secrets of every heart. He knows our motives, why we do what we do. This never ceases to amaze me. Jesus knows us like no one else does and loves us in a way no one else can. On his head are many crowns, for this is the royal Messiah. Crowns are symbols of victory. The dragon that we saw last weekend in Revelation 12 has seven crowns. Revelation 13 refers to the beast from the sea, the dragon's partner, and the beast has ten crowns. Jesus rides into this final battle as someone who has multiple victories under his belt. So he has many crowns. In fact, I believe when every person comes to faith in Christ, when we proclaim Jesus as Lord and we are set free from the powers of sin and Satan, that's another crown for Jesus. It is a mark of victory. The fact that Jesus has many crowns also signifies all things are under his lordship. No area is exempt from his rule. Nothing is outside of his jurisdiction. And Jesus has a name written on him that no one knows but him. And this is yet another pointer to the divinity of Jesus. And numerous times the book of Revelation refers to Jesus in divine 
terms. He is God. There is no uncertainty around this issue. The name written on him that no one knows but he himself authenticates his divinity. But just as we cannot exhaust our knowledge of God, in the same way, we cannot exhaust our knowledge of Jesus. We can never fully know him. There will always be aspects of Jesus that will remain unknown and unfathomable. So what is true of God is true of Jesus as well. If you're a Jehovah's Witness hearing this, just open your eyes to the truth of the Bible. You cannot deny the divinity of Jesus. Here's verse 13. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Now, can you picture this for a moment? Jesus on a white horse with many crowns, and his robe is dipped in blood. His garments are blood-stained. Whose blood is this referring to? As some interpreters think that the blood on his garments signifies the blood of his enemies. He's drenched in his enemy's blood because the context here is warfare. But the problem is, while Jesus is pictured as coming to wage war, the battle itself has not taken place yet. It occurs only in the last part of Revelation 19. So how could Jesus' robes be dipped in his enemy's blood prior to the battle? So that leads me to conclude especially on the basis of the centrality of the cross in the book of Revelation and all of New Testament, this is Christ's own blood. Though Jesus is portrayed in Revelation 19 as the divine warrior, he's not the kind of warrior that we know of. Jesus conquers, not like the way Rome does, by bulldozing his enemies through the use of sheer force, Jesus is not a military conqueror. His path is self-sacrifice. He conquers by laying down his own life. So even in the victory march of Jesus at his second coming, it shows us that the victory was won through the cross. It is by shedding his own blood that Jesus conquers the forces of darkness. Which king ever done anything like this. Once again, Jesus is incomparable. It's fascinating to look at the armies of heaven following Jesus. Look at their description in verse 14. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. The armies of heaven represent the followers of Jesus. They are wearing fine linen, white and clean, but the robe of Jesus is stained with blood. Can you see the powerful contrast of imageries here? Jesus' garments are blood-stained. The garments of his followers are clean. You know, prior to the cross, it was the other way around. Jesus' garments were clean. Our garments were stained with sin. But a great exchange took place at the cross. Jesus took our stains upon himself so we can be made spotless clean. 
There is only one provision for our sins that God has made. The blood of Jesus washes us white as snow. Our text tells us his name is the word of God. That's the unique phrase John uses to refer to Jesus in his gospel, in his first letter, as well as the book of Revelation. Now, there's an important sense in which the Bible is the word of God, divinely inspired and preserved by God. But the ultimate communication that the Bible attests to is Jesus, the word of God incarnate. So as the word of God, Jesus is the self-expression of God. Verse 15 is a difficult text. Look at it. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. I know what some of you are thinking. Pastor Ashwin, you said that Jesus doesn't fight like a a military general, but the path of Jesus is self-sacrifice. So why then is this sword from his mouth striking the nations? Great question, glad you asked. You know, I had this exact conversation actually with someone from a different worldview, a young man I was talking to a while ago. And as I challenged him on some of the violence that uh, his faith had perpetuated all around the world, he challenged me back by asking this question, what about the book of Revelation? Isn't Jesus going to slaughter people too when he comes again? Isn't he pictured as waging a war? Now, as you look at the pictures in Revelation of a conquering general coming in victory, this is all presented in military imagery, granted. This is a conquest that signifies the utter defeat of the opposition. But here's a question. Where are the weapons? Is Jesus and his army coming with assault rifles or machine guns to blow everybody? Now, what you read in the text is actually incompatible with an imagery of a physical warfare. Now, look at the army of Jesus. Do they carry any weapons? The conquering army is dressed in white, fine linen. Who would dress up like this for a war? Are you crazy to wear fine linen, white costumes to fight a gory war? The army has forgotten something basic, their soldier outfits. But tell me, who actually dresses in fine white linen? Not military warriors, but the only people who wear white linen were the priests. The kingdom of Jesus is an army of priests. They don't cause destruction. They pray and intercede even on behalf of their enemies. That is the job of the priest. And that's how we fight our battle. See, this text and many parts of the Bible have been misinterpreted and we have seen terrible things like the Crusades being justified on, the, on this basis. Hear me. Nowhere are we called to take on worshipers of false gods in a physical battle. 
Christ followers don't advance the kingdom of Jesus through physical warfare or force, for that would be an insult to the work of Christ on the cross. Hear what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, you may still not be convinced, and you may ask me, isn't there a reference to a sword? Isn't Jesus carrying a sword? Yes, Jesus is having a sword, but the sword is not in his hands, but it's in his mouth, and there's a big difference. The sword in his mouth is a figurative expression that merely speaks to the power of his speech. So here in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes on a white horse to fight the final battle of Armageddon, he doesn't use weapons, no swords or guns. He just shows up and he speaks and the battle is over. That's all it takes to decimate his oppositions. Powerful words that nobody could refute. For who in the world can stand against the living word of God? You know, all through the ministry of Jesus, you see the power of his words. Jesus spoke and it came to pass. In Matthew chapter 8, a Roman centurion came to Jesus on behalf of his servant who was sick. And when Jesus asked him, do you want me to come with you to your house? The centurion's response was so profound that it even amazed Jesus. He basically says, Jesus, you don't have to come all the way to my home. I'm not even worthy to have you in my home. Just say the word and my servant will be well. This man who was a Roman centurion knew the power of his words. When he gave order to those under his command, they didn't have a choice. No questions asked, no excuses offered. They were obligated to do whatever was asked of them. If such was the power of a Roman centurion who commanded a small section of the Roman army, how much more power lies in the words of the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords? You know, here's something else to note. People make a big deal out of this battle of Armageddon. This is the final battle between Jesus against all the armies of the Antichrist. This much awaited battle, this grand finale, turns out to be a complete anticlimax. This battle never takes place. There is no fighting. As I said, Jesus merely speaks and all his enemies surrender. So in the latter part of Revelation 19, the beast that symbolizes the Antichrist, the false prophet that stands for all the false religious ideologies of this world, are thrown into the lake of fire. Then turn over to the next chapter, Revelation 20, the dragon is now cast into the lake of fire. All the oppositions to Christ's kingdom are wiped out without a fight. Everyone who opposes the kingdom of Jesus are brought to subjection by his word. Now, Professor Daryl Johnson, who has really helped me understand the book of Revelation and many of the thoughts that I've offered in the series, I've benefited from him. He points out 
The reason there is no battle in Revelation is because there is no need for another battle. In fact, the battle has already been won on the cross. There is only one battle in Revelation. It is not Armageddon. It's the cross. And that's the battle we saw last weekend where through the cross, Jesus defeated the principalities and powers and they were hurled out from heaven. So at the second coming, Jesus is not coming to fight for victory, but to bring into full realization the victory that he has already won for us through the cross. Now you may ask, if there is no physical battle, why are military metaphors being used in the first place? The military metaphors of slaughter and killing are symbols that point to something beyond. Jesus does not come to fight, but he comes to judge. And there's a big difference between those words. This is more an execution of justice rather than a physical conflict. That's evident in our text. If you look at the second part of verse 11, which I said we'll come back to, with justice, he judges and wages war. So the warfare terminology is used to refer to his justice. It's not physical warfare. And let me make this clear. Reference to God's judgment is not unique to the book of Revelation, but it runs all through the Bible. Sometimes we can be guilty of a sentimental view of God and of Jesus. We emphasize, we overemphasize God's love to the exclusion of his holiness. We just cannot hold on to one side and pretend that the other side doesn't exist. God is holy and he hates sin. Sin is not just a mistake. It's not, oops, I did it again. It is an act of defiance against a holy God. Whether you realize this or not, if you're living a sinful lifestyle, you are in direct rebellion against God. And God is tolerating sin and evil for a season, giving us the opportunity to repent. But there is coming a day when he's going to say, enough, it's time to get rid of all evil. In the words of Paul Spilsbury, the purpose of judgments so graphically and violently depicted in Revelation is to make absolutely clear the intensity of God's opposition to evil. Don't you want to worship a God who intensely opposes evil? Aren't you tired of the evil that we see in our world that is going so rampant? I just heard in the news this past week about a man in Calgary who assaulted his four-year-old stepdaughter, resulting in catastrophic brain injury. He's now been charged. Calgary police was quoted saying, before the incident, the victim, this little girl, was a normal, healthy, happy child who was swimming, walking, running, talking, and now she's confined to a wheelchair and does not have full use of her left side of her body. 
Now, what kind of a man would do that to a defenseless four-year-old girl? And when you hear this, you cringe on the inside. There's something within you that yearns for justice. Imagine, imagine how much God has been putting up for centuries. Rebellion after rebellion, hatred, violence, killing, abuse, rape, the repeated exploitation of the innocent, including the torture and martyrdom of his own children. What kind of a God would overlook the gross injustices of the world and pretend that everything is fine? What kind of a God would turn a blind eye to such cruel atrocities? Church, we need to stop apologizing for the wrath of God as though there is a defect in his character. A God who doesn't demonstrate wrath against evil is not worthy of worship. The problem with many of us is we equate God's wrath with the temper tantrum of a three-year-old. It is not an emotion that just comes every now and then. God's wrath is his fierce opposition to all that is evil and against his character. If you're concerned about the way our world is going, the book of Revelation guarantees us God is going to take care of all evil and all evildoers. It's only a matter of time. Justice will roll down and everything wrong with this world will be sorted out. This is not a fearful message. This is a message of hope. Christian hope is always tied to the return of Christ. Jesus is coming soon. And this time he's not coming on a donkey with terms of peace, but he's riding a white horse to establish his kingdom. And the question is not, is Jesus going to come back? But the question is, are you going to be ready when he comes back? That's the question each one of us here have to ask ourselves. Look at verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When the Roman Emperor walked into his uh, Senate chamber, everyone would rise from their seats and they will all shout out loud these very words, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John takes the universal title of sovereignty applied to Caesar and he now puts it to Jesus. Caesar is not sovereign. There's someone about Caesar who holds everything in his hands. His name is Jesus. And in the midst of brutal persecutions, it is this grand vision of Jesus that helped the early church to cope with their fears. It in fact confirmed the fact that their fears were unwarranted. The early church knew this. It really doesn't matter how it looks on the outside. 
the underlying unchangeable spiritual reality is Jesus is king. And the effect of this vision of a victorious Jesus sustained the early church during the worst phase of opposition. This vision turned the first century world upside down. It produced strong disciples who fixed their eyes on Jesus and persevered in their faith in the midst of the persecutions. It started a movement that continues even today. That tells me something. The book of Revelation was not written to satisfy our intellectual curiosity of when Jesus will return and who is the Antichrist and how all these things will come to an end. It's not so we can draw our charts and study this to death and create our own denominations because we disagree with somebody else's interpretation on a minor issue. This is a practical book. This book helps us to see Jesus. It gives the good news that Jesus is going to win. It offers a vision of hope that will sustain you in the most trying times of your life. Jesus is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. There is no higher power above him. Do we believe that? If we believe that, then whatever oppositions we are facing, we need to look at that opposition through this lens, this vision of a Jesus who is big and awesome, who rules all things, makes our opposition turn small and insignificant. Can the governments of this world rise up against Jesus and hinder his work? Jesus is Lord over our governments. Can the most powerful, influential leaders think that they chart the course of history? Wrong. Jesus is king. He charts the course of history. Leaders come and go. Jesus remains. You know, we think we can take God out of our schools and universities through our policies. Good luck with that. Jesus is Lord over our school system. Public policies cannot stop our children from coming to know Jesus. And we think our materialistic business corporations dictate the economy of this world. No, no, no. Jesus dictates the destiny of this world and where everything is headed. Let's get a little bit more personal. And you're facing that challenge in your life that is so intimidating. A cancer diagnosis, a loss of job, or uncertainty over your own future. Remind yourself, Jesus is still Lord and King over your circumstances. He holds your life in the palm of his hands. You can be totally secure no matter the outcome. I want to close with these words from Pastor Daryl Johnson from his book on Revelation. This will be a fitting conclusion to the series. Hear these words. If it ever became illegal in my part of the world, as it actually is in other places at this very moment, to own a complete copy of the Bible, and the authorities as an act of mercy allowed me to possess only one book of the Bible for personal use, I would without hesitation 
keep the last. Why? Because no other book of the Bible presents the gospel as powerfully as the last one does. No other book of the Bible, in the face of all that threatens to undo us, proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ the way the last book does. And more particularly, in no other book of the Bible do we see Jesus as clearly and compellingly as we do in the book of Revelation. This book is a revelation of Jesus. If we see Jesus clearly through this book, we have understood its message. I'm going to ask all of us to stand as we come to an end. As I was preparing this message, there's something the Lord impressed on my heart. Because we, as a church, have lost something. We've lost the imminency of Jesus' return. Now think about this. The first century Christians who read this book of Revelation lived with eager anticipation that Jesus could come in their lifetime. And their prayer was, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. When was the last time we prayed something like that? Beseeching and pleading and asking God to send Jesus again. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. That is the heartbeat of every Christian. And if we have lost that sense of imminency, would you ask God to revive that in your heart? The question is not, is Jesus coming back? The question is, are you going to be ready when he returns? And that's a personal question for each one of you here. Hey, don't leave this place without being able to answer that question. The King of kings, the Lord of lords is going to come one day. Are you ready to meet him face to face? And if you're not ready, this is a moment you need to ask God for his help. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you have given up on the faith a long time ago, Today is an opportunity for you to make that decision and you can leave this place with the assurance that if Jesus were to come tonight, you are ready. You need to ask him to come into your heart first. And there are some of us who are living in disobedience to the king. There's an area in your life you know that you are not honoring Jesus. If Jesus were to come tonight, would you be ready? Would Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? If not, a course correction is needed and let it be starting today. I'm going to ask us to maintain a moment of silence. This is a personal moment between you and Jesus. So just reflect on what you've heard. After a moment of silence, I'll close this in prayer.
Father, thank you for speaking to us today. We believe that it's only a matter of time before Jesus returns. That Jesus is coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords to wipe out all oppositions to his kingdom. And we as your people say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Come to redeem your church. Come to put an end to the violence and evil and all that we see that is against your character. Come to help the innocent and the hurting and the broken. That you will establish your reign here on earth. That you will remove any opposition to your kingdom. And I pray that our hearts will be ready that not a single person will leave this place without seriously reflecting on this question about our readiness at the time of your return. God, I pray for those who have made a fresh commitment to follow you today, that you will empower them with your spirit and enable them to walk with you closely. I pray for those who have been convicted by you to make a course correction, that you will give them strength from above to be able to live out their life in a different way, in a way that will honor you and glorify you. Thank you, God, for the hope that you've given to us through the book of Revelation. We know that when we belong to Jesus, we belong to the winning side. So may this hope flood our hearts today in a fresh way, in a way that it hasn't done before, that we will leave this place with a deep sense of assurance that we are safe and secure that the world is not going out of control, it's not spiraling out of control, but you have all things in the palm of your hand. So we give you all the praise, all the glory, all the worship, even as we leave this place. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen.